Hello and welcome to Science A Candle in the Dark our monthly conversation about the wonders of science and how it illuminates our path in this astonishing universe in association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique we strive to make science a part of our public discourse especially here in California's Central Valley I'm your host Dr Marusudan Katti from the biology department at Fresno State Are you feeling the madness March is a month of madness they say from the madness of hares running around crazily in the english countryside on a surge of hormones to the contest of sporting teams and their fans rooting for them in the annual march madness of college basketball in america if you're the nerdy non-sporting type like me however you might want to follow a different kind of march madness competition with more of a science and nature flavor i'm talking about march mammal madness a new springtime competition created by anthropologist dr katie hind 4 years ago you may remember dr hind from our round table on darwin day when she was one of the panelists March Mammal Madness pits a wonderful variety of mammal species most of them real ones but also some imaginary species against each other in brackets that i think mirror the NCAA basketball version the species are chosen by a team of biologists who use actual biological information about the mammals in a complex algorithm to determine the head to head winners all of the action takes place on twitter on weekday evenings and you can follow along using the hashtag 2016mmm and believe me there's a lot of action going on because the algorithm also introduces some randomness so there are upsets and there are wild cards and you have really passionate fans rooting for their teams i believe you've just had the sweet 16 round and are now down to 8 mammals for this year and you can join in to find out who is left standing as the 2016 champion by the end of the month for more information go to mammalsuck.blogspot.com com or #2016mmm on twitter my guest today is dr christopher trisos a postdoctoral scholar at the social environmental synthesis center in annapolis in maryland dr trisos hails from south africa where he got his undergraduate degrees in botany ecology and economics he then moved to oxford university in the uk as a road scholar and did his phd research on the evolutionary ecology of birds Specifically he's used approaches from both evolutionary biology and ecology to test the importance of habitat uh, modes of dispersal interspecific competition and speciation on how bird species coexist in South America and that will be the subject of his upcoming presentation at Peeves pub next month when he's visiting Fresno and will speak at the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique I should also mention that Chris and I have been collaborating over the past year leveraging his expertise in analyzing the distribution of bird species diversity using evolutionary and ecological approaches to understand how urbanization and cities influence when and where we find birds now. Welcome to Science the Candle in the Dark Chris. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So let me start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey to being this international scholar. and your personal story started in south africa and then went to to england uh, to studying birds in peru and south america and now you're in the us yes so how did uh, all that happen well i actually started so right from when i was a kid my parents and grandparents were really into natural history and i spent a lot of time in and around cape town on the mountains there's a really rich flora there it's one of the most biodiverse places for plants on the planet and so i spent yeah. a lot of time actually picking flowers and doing flower arranging competitions with my gran i won a prize for wow. flower decorating as a 6-year-old <laughs> oh wow um, i didn't i don't think i saw that on the tv no <laughs> that's 
long enough ago that I think I can leave it <laughs> off. Um, and then through that, sort of became really interested in biology, but actually didn't get on with biology at high school. South Africa only started mm. with evolution in the uh, high school syllabus in 2008. Can you believe it? Oh, wow. Okay. And so the whole way through part of school, I was in biology class and I was always getting put in detention for not coloring in organs inside frogs correctly on diagrams and labeling things from sheep's brains. And so I actually stopped biology and did art history in high school and then ended up in university and decided that geography was really interesting. And geography was in the science department at the University of Cape Town. They said, well, if you do geography, you have to do a biology course. And I went to the oh, dean of the science faculty and said, look, biology and me, we don't really get along. Can I have an exemption here and maybe do oceanography or something else? And they said, no, you have to do biology. So I did the first six months and it was okay, but it wasn't great. And then went back and said, look, I passed that one. Please can I have an exemption for the second six months. I'd really like to do this other physics thing. No, 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 you have to do biology. And the second six months was great because the course was called The Diversity of Life. And we had this wonderful mm. lecturer, George Branch. And that was the first time I'd really had any proper introduction to evolutionary biology theory. And it was just this really cool theory and overarching narrative of why all around the world, things might look the way they do. And I found that super intriguing and ended up changing my major from geography to ecology and evolutionary biology and became really, really interested in a field called community ecology and macroecology. So that's questions around how species coexist and why their geographical ranges look the way they do. And when it came to thinking about grad school, decided that it would be really fun to spend some time outside of South Africa to get different perspectives on those types of research questions. A lot of South African biology, I think quite rightly, focuses on local animals and plants because there's such a great diversity of them right on the doorstep. But I Yeah, especially plants. Yeah, absolutely. We thought it would be nice to go somewhere a bit further afield and ended up at Oxford, fortunately on some scholarship funding, and the research group. Not a place you think about as being particularly biologically diverse, right? <laughs> no, very true. <laughs> um, and I hadn't worked on birds before arriving in Oxford either. I'd just done plant stuff. Oh. But they, they have a, a research group there called the Edward Gray Institute, which runs one mm -hmm. of the longest field studies on a bird population. The yeah, birds yeah, are called yeah. great tits, and they live in a, yes. a woodland outside Oxford, White, White and Woods. They're small, and Woods, small yeah. songbirds. And they've been studying their population biology at least 60 years now. And they have this really fantastic mm -hmm. record. And I, as part of a master's project, got involved in that and thought, wow, bird, bird work's really cool. But I'd like to get back to those questions about why species live where they do and biodiversity across large areas like continents. And so for mm -hmm. PhD, linked up with Natalie Seddon and Joe Tobias, two other researchers at Oxford who worked in South America, and I'd, I'd never been to South America before, and I thought, well, this is really cool. I'll get to do bird stuff, and the questions I'm interested in go somewhere completely new. And so that's how I ended up doing research in Peru for my PhD. And then post-Oxford wow. thought, and this is how our collaboration has begun, of course, that it's all very well to study diversity of life in these really wild places, but increasingly most areas on the planet have some human impact or really high human impact. So it's also interesting to understand diversity in 
places where there are lots of people like cities and that's how I then ended up as a postdoc at the socio-environmental synthesis center because they are very focused on combining elements of understanding human and natural systems. That's great and that's quite a comprehensive journey to prepare what I think from my own development as an important set of skills for today's biology and today's world. Thanks. You're talking about your interest in the distribution of birds. Yes. So what kind of insights can you get from the evolutionary history of birds and how to help us understand their current ecology and distribution? Um, That's a really great question. There's still a lot of debate on, on much of this research because it's a really hard field and in some cases impossible to do experiments um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to sort of get any, a bird oh, species yeah. across a whole continent and do an experiment on it's really difficult. So instead, we use observational studies of where species exist currently and combine those with information from genetics to tell us the evolutionary history of how those species are related to test hypotheses and and one of the the evolutionary insights into modern day geographic distributions of birds that evolutionary biology gives us is we think it's very likely that most cases of bird speciation are what's called allopatric speciation so that means that if you imagine on a map like if you look in a bird guide and you see there's a sort of blob drawn for where the bird species exists now allopatric Mm -hmm. speciation is speciation that takes place when a population is severed from that main blob. So perhaps one mechanism would be vicariance. That might be a river or a mountain range or some big geographic barrier rises up and separates those populations. Or one population might disperse across a river and not come back into contact. And those two populations then evolve separately and become Mm -hmm. two different species over a long period of time, maybe hundreds of thousands to millions of years. And so what that suggests, when that's the dominant mode of speciation in birds, then it's very unlikely, your sort of beginning expectation is that it's unlikely that sister species, i.e. most closely related species, would coexist in the same geographic space because Mm. they've speciated in separate areas. So then the question becomes, okay, when we do see close relatives, sisters, coexisting, what processes allowed for them to disperse back into what's called sympatry, being in the same place. So that's one one insight evolutionary biology gives us for bird distributions. Your work also focused on or has addressed these kinds of questions in a place in South America which is known for a remarkably high diversity of bird species. Yes. From what you described in terms of trying to understand how two sister species might coexist in a place when they evolved in separate places, How do you go from there to trying to understand how 500 bird species occur in a forest in Peru? Ah, that's a fantastic question, actually. (laughs) And um, a lot lot of people I worked with for my PhD and in that lab are are really engaged with trying to answer that. So biologists have defined what they call alpha diversity, which is the number of species Mm -hmm. that are in a particular place. And you're completely correct. The alpha diversity in some parts of the Peruvian Andes and Amazon is absolutely amazing. They're about... 10,000 species of bird worldwide and in some places in Peru in an area 100 by 100 kilometers you can encounter about a thousand species almost one in ten of the world's bird species which Mm -hmm. is pretty mind-blowing and so this question if things have 
become species in different places, then how, how do you get high alpha diversity? Well, one of the ways is from those separate species then having coming back into contact and having their ranges overlap and building up. You can imagine it like layering those blob maps over each other from your bird guide, right? Like building up this high alpha diversity. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the interesting ecology potentially comes in. So questions like maybe two species can only come back into coexistence if they occupy what we call different niches. So they use resources in in a different way. Perhaps one of them forages in the canopy of the forest and another one forages on the on the understory so they don't compete in space. Or one of them is active in the daytime and the other in the nighttime. Uh, in the nighttime. So mm -hmm. these ecological research questions around what's called niche partitioning how do species separate out the resources that are available ecologically so that they can come into coexistence would be the ecology side of that another interesting and emerging field of research is around diseases perhaps mm -hmm. the species that can coexist are those that do not carry diseases that are infectious to close relatives so for example birds actually suffer from a range of different types of malaria parasites. And yeah. one of the research suggestions in the area I worked with for my PhD is the same parasite is more likely to infect closely related species, but it might be more oh. detrimental to one than to another. So one way you might see lower alpha diversity, lower bird species richness, is if species A is in a particular place and carries the malaria parasite but is not that badly affected by it. But perhaps a close relative is also susceptible, but way more adversely affected. Oh. And that prevents so their, their coexistence. Some species might be able to sort of leverage a parasite as a way to outcompete others. Yes. Yeah. And the, the phrase for that that we use is called apparent competition. So uh -huh. instead of direct competition or indirect competition where something is either a direct would be aggressively fighting with each other, say over a territory, a spatial competition, or indirect yeah. might be the one species eats the food that the other also needs, so indirectly it's excluded, but then apparent competition would be they're not actually competing with each other, but there's some other third mechanism or second mechanism like a parasite that they both share that leads to the mm -hmm. one being excluded from the geographic location. That's fascinating. And I know you also specifically incorporate the direct evolutionary history of birds in analyzing their distribution, right? You use phylogenies. Yes. In trying to understand uh, where species occur now. Um, so a, ph a phylogeny, for, for those who don't know, is an evolutionary tree. So one of those stick figure diagrams you see, sort of the branching tree of life, that tells us which species are related to which other species and how far back in time they've shared a common ancestor if we know something about the rates at which genes change then we can get what's called a time calibrated phylogeny because we can actually have the lengths of the branches on that evolutionary tree represent mm -hmm. the number of years since two species diverged and so that gives us some estimate of the age of a species when did it split from its most recent common ancestor and how long has that species been around? A million years, two million years, half a million years. One of the hypotheses there is that older species should perhaps have larger geographic ranges. They've had more time to spread across a landscape and adapt to the ecological heterogeneity of that landscape. And so 
one of the tests there, which is not that well supported by a lot of data in birds, actually, but the, the expectation is that when you have these really old species, they might have much larger ranges. But then, of course, mm. contemporary geography and historical geography and ecology comes in and complicates that. Perhaps the bird is, is an old species, but is really specialized to a particular habitat type, and that habitat is really restricted in space. So then it has a small range, even though it's old. So that might break that relationship. So there's this interesting and constant interplay between the evolutionary history of the species and its current and historical ecology that sort of plays for and against many of these hypotheses about where and why species live in the ways they do. And when you talk about the current geography and ecology, of course, that brings us to the other big species that is influencing everybody's ecology right now, and which is us, right, the humans. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, oh, I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> certainly, changes in contemporary distribution, in many cases, we can attribute to human activity, a mm -hmm. classic one being deforestation. So yeah. for many forest-dependent birds they will not exist in grasslands or savanna environments, for example, and in the tropics and in some temperate spaces where there's been large-scale deforestation. You've had really big range reductions, yeah, decrease in the geographic range of a species, which is one of the criteria by which the IUCN lists species as red list or endangered. And so that's where we directed driving species closer to extinction and sure, reducing diversity. Sure. And then, in some cases, other species benefit from, from that human intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Perhaps if you're a grassland or a savanna bird in that case, that sort of pushing back from the forest and expansion of the grassland could lead to an increase in your geographic range and population size. And then climate change is, a, is another more indirect way humans are changing bird distributions. One example also related to vegetation change might be in parts of southern Africa where because there's now more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide is improving plant growth for what's called C3 photosynthesis plants. So that's things like trees and shrubs, as opposed to tropical grasses. So you're actually seeing this invasion of trees and shrubs into what used to be grassland ecosystems. So there it's the contraction of the grassland species, bird species ranges, and the expansion of some of the woodland species through the way, as humans, we've modified the planet's atmosphere. Are there good examples of not just ecological changes in distribution, but also evolutionary changes in birds because of humans? That's a really good question. It's, it's an area I'm less familiar with. One that comes to mind is, I think there have been some interesting studies around birds in urban environments where mm -hmm. song notes have potentially evolved to take on different frequencies because of the sound transmission properties changing when you're in a more built-up environment versus a more natural environment. So birds might sing at different frequencies and have adapted to do that given the different environments that humans have created versus the, the natural ones that they've adapted to over recent evolutionary history. If you talk to birders and ask them about what birds you might find in cities, you, you invariably sort of end up with a, a short list of a few species that are that most birders don't particularly like because they tend to be common and dominant in many cities around the world. Sure. So they've thought of these, these urban birds and 
you think about urban habitat, they're presumably you know evolved along with cities to be able to use that and exploit that habitat, and perhaps even losing their ability to live outside. Sure, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how much... So there's this constant debate in parts of evolutionary biology, right, about whether something has adapted to a condition or whether it was pre-adapted through some other environmental dynamic to take advantage of a situation like a city that it is now presented with as a species. So do you think we have some good examples of being able to tease apart that idea that some of the birds we see often in urban areas have actually evolved to adapt to take advantage of that? in the city or were pre-adapted to take advantage of the environments a city presents? As you said, that is a difficult question to tease apart, especially, I think, when you think about these well-known urban specialists like house sparrows have been urbanized for so long that you don't really find them outside the city as much. Mm. Right? They're sort of the classic urban species. So we don't, it, it, it may be a bit harder to see, of course, you can look at uh, their relatives and, and look for their traits to see if they were pre-adapted and and we've seen arguments about why they might have traits and behaviors that allow them to do well in the city. Sure. But but to me, it strikes me as a sort of you know, a co-evolutionary process. Right. Because this habitat, this urban habitat has come along, and and it's different from the natural habitats in many ways, especially if you're going from, you talked about going from forest to savanna, then you go from that to cities where in some cases you might actually bring some forests back because people like trees in cities. So you have urban forests. Sure. You have more more structural complexity. And I, I'm curious about you know how that plays into either the, the pre-existing you know, uh, pre-adapted traits uh, as well as potentially selecting for traits in the city. So the, the bird song example you mentioned is, a, is one that people are beginning to look at now. Sure. But you also have things like changes in uh, timing of breeding. Mm. There are examples of changing in uh, migration patterns. You know, with the the black-capped warblers in England and Europe, right? Sure, sure, yes. It looks like people feeding them in backyards in in the city seems to have changed their pattern of migration. So you have more birds wintering in England than they used to. Yeah. In a sense, migrating sort of more to the northwest rather than going south towards Africa. Yeah. I think those are really good examples and and really interesting in for us as humans starting to think about how on these both how quickly species can adapt but also mm-hmm. how fast we are changing ecosystems and whether this interesting dynamic about like how much stuff can actually keep pace and where do we need to be most concerned in terms of conserving local biodiversity because it can't adapt to the speed at which we're we're altering the environment. I mean, I think one example which has intrigued me in urban birds is this idea around cognitive function in mm-hmm. corvids, so some crow species. Yeah. And whether, so they're f- these really interesting birds because they're, they're quite clever. So some New Caledonian crows is the poster child for this where they, they actually make tools to forage grubs out of logs in yeah. New Caledonia and different crow populations in different parts of the islands actually have these culture, different tool-making cultures. So mm-hmm. it's been thought crows in some urban areas might, because of their relatively larger brain size, be more able to adapt to these urban environments because they're cleverer, right? And they can they use the, mm-hmm. the sort of greater variety of opportunities inval- available in an urban space. But that's another mm-hmm. one that seems really interesting because it's both this idea of 
crows being pre-adapted to take advantage of the urban space, but then also as, as humans, and this is something we were talking about the other day, right? When we make things like legislation changes or even just a town council decision to change the way we store our trash, yep. know, does that have an impact on the cognitive evolution of the crows coming through that town because they're now presented with a different mental problem of accessing that food resource? And then mm-hmm. how does that... The, when they learn to solve that problem, does that then pass to other crow populations in different neighborhoods and suburbs? And I think there's some really fascinating questions there to be researched. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating and, and a, a rich area for research, even though a lot of us you know, trained in evolutionary ecology don't often think about cities as places where we can do this interesting research. Oh, absolutely. I think so, that that's a key point, right, for, for so long mm-hmm. ecologists, to some expect, respect, wrote cities off as places with too much human disturbance for there to be interesting ecology happening. And now there's this mm-hmm. refocusing on cities as places where a lot of interesting ecology is happening and that as more and more people live in cities, they're places that we really need to understand more holistically. Yeah, and then that sort of brings us to what you're doing now at Sessing. So let me ask one last question. You started with uh, an interest more in the social sciences and were forced to take biology, you said, sure. and, and have ended up uh, doing much more interesting evolutionary ecological work. And now mm-hmm. you're back to looking at the human side of the equation as well. So, so why do you think it's important for evolutionary biologists to study or at least pay attention to the social sciences in today's world? Uh, I, think, I think that's an excellent question. Um, one of my answers would be that so much of, of the way the... F- the geographical and environmental structure of the planet is being changed is due to human impact. And to be able to develop any kind of mechanistic understanding of those to predict how change will play out in the future, I think is really important. It's one thing, for example, to have a model of future climate change and predict where you think bird species will live under climates in 2200, 2500 but it's a whole other thing to actually understand the human dynamics that drive those different climate scenarios. For example, Mm -hmm. ideas around economic development and the uptake of those ideas, as well as political science contributions on negotiations and international trade talks and international climate conferences, as well as sociology contributions on inequality between populations and groups of people and how they use and access resources and all of those things are really important to being able to build this more holistic understanding of both the human side driving the environmental change as well as the biological Mm -hmm. side responding to that change and in turn feeding back onto the human system because we take so many of our cues from nature that this is really i think a system where the feedback goes in both directions as humans we might destroy it or clear cut a patch of forest but then that changes the local climate and we maybe don't like that climate change and we replant the forest and so there's a driver in both ways and I think in that sense it's really important that both the social and the natural sciences develop these stronger links in their research to be able to understand those systems more holistically. Thank you that that was uh, much to think about and I think obviously we're going to keep carrying on these conversations but uh, we have to to stop there for for today. 
So thank you for being the guest on on the show today, Chris. And uh, I look forward to having you in Fresno in a couple of weeks and learning more about this. And I invite our audience to come out to Peace Pub in two weeks now. Yeah. To hear you, to hear more from you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, if people are interested in finding out more about why birds live where they do, and especially in Peru, and how climate <laughs> change and human impacts might change that. Great for them to come along to the talk. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mary. And that's our show for today. Science, a candle in the dark, will be back on Tuesday, April 26th. The Central Valley Cafe Scientifique will meet at Peeves Pub on Wednesday, April 6th, where you can hear more from our guest today about birds in Peru. For more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want more science conversation to carry around in your pockets, you can always download our podcasts where you have access to all of our previous episodes to listen to any time of your choosing. Our show is produced by me, Dr. Madhusudan Katti, and Vic Bedoyan for KFCF 88.1 FM. And the theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. For today's interview, we owe special thanks to Maggie Penman, a producer at NPR in Washington, D.C., who lent us the use of their studios to interview Dr. Chris Trisos, who happens to live in D.C. And with that, farewell, dear listeners. And until next month, happy sciencing, because remember, science is a verb.